Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. As I mentioned last week, Tales to Terrify will once again be opening for submissions on August 15th. If you're keeping track, as of release day of this episode, that's just two weeks away. So, sharpen your quill and get writing. We want to see what horrible, disturbing things your mind can conjure. Before we dig in, I want to give a big thank you to patrons Jeanette Thwaites, Rafael Alvarez, and our newest patron, Deb B., for your generous support. Your kindness helps to nourish the twisted and tormented souls of your fellow children of the night. And I, for one, couldn't be more grateful. This week, I've got something a little different to kick off the episode. In honor of next week's release of the highly anticipated final novel of George A. Romero, The Living Dead, I've got an interview with writer Daniel Krauss, the author who took on the monumental task of finishing Romero's final epic tale. I originally spoke with Daniel way back at the beginning of the year, 
before the chaos of pandemic descended onto the world and resulted in the book's release being delayed. So, while some of the more timely details might be a little off, the conversation itself was both interesting and eye-opening. I'll be posting the full interview, as well as an exclusive excerpt from The Living Dead, for our Patreon supporters in the next few days. But here's a taste of our discussion that sheds some intriguing light on the work itself, and a behind-the-scenes look at Daniel's process to get there. So, without further ado, Children of the Night, join me for a brief conversation with author Daniel Krause. I guess to start off with, why horror? Have you always been into horror writing? Has that always kind of been your jam or you know, have you done other stuff? Yeah, horror has always been my jam. I grew up on it, really. My mom was a big horror fan. And basically back then, what that meant was she would watch horror that came on TV. So this is, you know, pre-cable, really. We're talking about early 80s. So, you know, I grew up watching Night of the Living Dead and watching, probably most importantly, watching The Twilight Zone. She was a huge Twilight Zone fan. And so from a very young age, you know, maybe five or six, I was watching Twilight Zone with her and really, really grew up on that. And it was my favorite show when I was a little kid and it's really my favorite show today. And I've noticed this a lot in not just horror people, but just people in general. You know, until you kind of level off as an adult, you kind of have these periods where your interest and stamina for horror changes. I remember there was a period, maybe around sixth, seventh grade or so, where suddenly I didn't, I couldn't take it. I didn't want to watch any horror and it made me physically ill. Uh, And then I swung back the other way. And I think, you know, I've often thought there's two kinds of people, people who like or, or who are fascinated by their uncomfortable reactions and kind of want to dive into them a little bit, and then people who kind of want to run away. And I don't think one's necessarily better than the other, but I was, or I am somebody who wants to be, at least in my media consumption, want to be disturbed. Now, do you think that appetite has anything to do with kind of changes in the world around you? I mean, I don't want to get too philosophical too early, but... Well, probably. You know, I'm I'm guessing these things, and maybe there's a biological element to it, but I think generally it's probably just what's happening in your life, certainly in adolescence, probably through teenhood. Things are changing so fast that your reactions to things are also changing. I think for me and many people, sort of that middle school area was sort of the toughest time of life. So it's not surprising that my appetites for anything were were sort of wildly in flux. Right. So how did the whole the Living Dead project come about? Was that something that you saw was, you know, they were looking for somebody or the, did they approach you? Yes, they approached me. And so I should say first that no artist influenced me more than George Romero, except possibly Rod Serling. Those two were guiding me through childhood and youth and adulthood too. So Romero was my favorite artist, not just my favorite filmmaker. He just, he meant everything to me. I grew up with his movies, 
His movies taught me how to really look at art and consume art and analyze art. By the time I was a teenager, I'd probably seen Mad Living Dead dozens of times. So to be involved in this project is mind-blowing still. You know, after George died, very shortly after he died, his um, wife and manager were looking through some of his stuff and trying to figure out what to do with various projects that he hadn't completed. And he had this zombie epic that he had been working on for a while and had written a fair amount of, but it was epic in size. So there's still a lot of it that wasn't written too. And they were looking for someone to finish it. And uh, the manager knew of me and my work and discussed it with George's wife. And they decided to see if I was interested. You know, they knew I was a acolyte of Romero's stuff. I don't know if they knew exactly how deeply I had studied his work, but they hopefully made a good choice, and I couldn't be more thrilled with the chance. That'd be a hell of a phone call to pick up, hey? Oh, yeah. It was. It was. Um, little did you know when you were younger, you were studying to, uh, to take on this project in a way, hey? Yeah, I know. It's crazy. It's, uh, it's like I, I had really been working towards it my whole life. And, you know, and it wasn't just a zombie stuff. Um, you know, I was technically, I'm less interested in zombies than I am George Romero. I was a student of all of his movies. So they, they could have gone with, you know, somebody who's just sort of known for writing zombie stuff. But my interest was sort of deeper than that. And the research and the way I sort of planned out the rest of the book that wasn't there was all based on what I knew of and what I could find out about George and his philosophies and where he was heading with everything. There was an element to writing the book that was very academic in that way. Almost like I had to sort of figure out George, almost as if I was preparing a biography of George. So I had to do that work before I could do the work of the novel. Interesting. It would almost be like an actor studying to play a part, except you're playing the part of George Romero. Yeah, I had never heard it uh, said that way, but that's a that's a really good way to put it. Um, I had to get myself into his head and figure out what he thought about things. You know, like one of the first things I did was have a long interview with his wife, just about his views on life. You know, was he religious? What were his politics? What did he think about technology? And we would just kind of go through all of these things, and it would give me a clearer picture about what his values were. And then, of course, she also provided me sort of a list of the things he loved the films and the music and so forth. And I studied all that stuff too, to figure out what was it about his favorite things that inspired him. And could I be inspired by those same works of art to help me build a scaffolding over these missing parts of the book? Sounds like a fairly intimate experience. Yeah, it really was. I think it was as close to writing with somebody as can be. And what was so crazy about the process was well into the writing, we would discover things, new things that new like elements. Like one time we found a bunch more pages he had written. Another time we found a letter he had written that kind of gave clues to where he was going with some of the story. But those, those didn't come at the beginning. They came when I was deep into the project. So it felt like a collaboration. You know, like he was out there in the ether sort of occasionally emailing me new stuff. So it was a very funny, strange experience and a challenging one because I'd have to retrofit things into the book or go back and redo sections because I'd have this new information. So there was a real puzzle aspect to it of how to work all these things in into a cohesive whole. But it was a, a really fascinating and enjoyable puzzle. 
Well, it sounds like you put a lot of effort into trying to remain as true as possible to the original intent. Yeah. I mean, that was my goal, was to try to be as true to Romero's artistic inclinations and his outlooks and his values as possible by going really, really deep into it. But at the end of the day, though, half of this book was going to be written by me. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was also, I had to acknowledge that, that at the end of the day, this was not going to be a Ghostwritten George, a Romero book. It was going to be a Romero Krauss book. That, that was inevitable, too. So at the same time, I had to allow myself within certain parameters to be myself as well. What condition was the novel in when it came to you? Was it just a a big pile of papers or kind of a a mixture of different thoughts? Or was it the starts of a fairly cohesive manuscript? The initial chunk that I got was uh, cohesive. Yeah, it was not a pile of notes or anything like that. It was there was no finish to it, but it was more or less front to back chronological novel. And it was, it was in variable shape. Some of it was in tremendously good shape. And then some of it was a little sketchier. Uh, sort of as it went, you, you could tell sort of the early stuff he had gone over a bunch. And then as it sort of went on, there was less revision involved. So by the time you got to the end of what he had written, it was a little sketchier. Like you could tell that it was stuff he was going to kind of fill in and texturize later. But overall, it was, it was in pretty good shape. And then as we found more stuff that would be worked into the book, that stuff was uh, in uh, even better shape in some ways. But it was it was like further on in the story. So there were there were gaps to deal with and stuff like mm. that. So as somebody who likes to map out your work fairly thoroughly, it sounds like the map wasn't necessarily there, but I'm guessing probably one of the first things you, you tried to fill in. Yeah. So the, yeah, but I had more than I usually do. Usually, I'm starting for the blank page, right? So yeah, in enough. this case, we had we had a highway going one direction. Uh, so I kind of knew where we were headed, and then thanks to these some of these other elements, including these notes he had on where some of the story threads were going, I had some points later on to get to, you know. And then I was able to do all this study, this intense study, particularly on his zombie works, of where were his ideas developing on zombies. It's interesting. One of the very first things I had to do, and you're right, as a planner and an outliner, this was catnip to me. But one of the first things I had to do, for example, was figure out the chronology of the films, which is not what you think it is. So the films come out, there's six zombie films. If you pay really close attention to what people say in the films, or in some cases, you have to listen to George on the commentary track. And in at least one case, you have to read the screenplay uh, because they make something clear that the film doesn't. But you start to realize that the order of the films, chronologically, is night, diary, survival, dawn, land, and day. So once you have this sort of true timeline figured out, then you can start to look for a pattern. You can start to see, all right, where, where did he start with this idea? Where was he heading with this idea? And once we know points one through six, what were seven, eight, and nine? What, is it, what does it become logical that seven, eight, and nine would be? So it became this sort of an exercise of using the past to figure out the future. Obviously, Romero's had a very large following, a fairly recognizable name. There's, there's a lot of weight that goes along with that in terms of fan expectations. How does that feel to know that that's probably something you have to manage at some point, too? I mean, you have to be writing for yourself. Like you said, half of this book is yours as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know how it's going to pan out. Early reaction is, is very positive. And I think it's important that at the end of the book is this long author's note that really details how it was all done. 
because I wanted to be sort of transparent and upfront about how I did it and why I did it. There are certain things in here that people may say, oh, that doesn't sound like something Romero would do. The author's notes where I make my case of, yes, it, it was something he wanted to do. Either explicitly it was something in his notes, or by studying A, B, and C, I made a very logical jump that D was this or that. You know, I think people who want just a gory zombie fest, and there, of course, are fans of his or in it, but that stuff, you know, that's not what this is. It was very clear in his manuscript that he was very interested in the characters. It's the same way, really, if you pay attention to his zombie movies. The, the zombies have always been just a catalyst for him. You know, it could have been anything. For him, it happened to be zombies. But he really is interested in the characters as the good guys and the bad guys. And the zombies aren't either. They're just something that's bringing out the good and bad in everyone. Right. What all do you have in the works right now? I guess, obviously, The Living Dead is, is kind of a, a big one coming up for mm -hmm. you here. Yeah, this year I have four things coming out. So it's a busy year. There's uh, Bent Heavens, which just came out. It's kind of, uh, kind of like E.T., if the kids decided to torture E.T., which sounds funny, but uh, it's definitely in the book not funny. It's sort of about, you know, torture and where the rubber hits the road when it comes to morality and can you do bad things to good ends. So that's out now. That just came out. Uh, the Living Dead comes out in June. And then in September, I have something new for me. The first book in a trilogy for middle grade readers. So this is younger, sort of elementary and maybe early middle school readers. So I've never really done that. Um, and that's called They Threw Us Away. But the series is called The Teddy Saga. So it's about teddy bears. So if you can imagine me writing a book about teddy bears, uh, it's kind of what you might imagine in that sense. It's a very, very dark and uh, disturbing teddy bear story. Not just cute, cuddly teddy bears. No, I mean, they're cute and cuddly, but what happens yeah. to them is certainly not cute and cuddly. I think that's it for the, the questions that I have. Was there anything else you wanted to add? So if you go to danielkraus.com, it's K-R-A-U-S, you can find my various social media. Maybe most importantly, you can send them to my newsletter because that's where I put most of this significant stuff. By following me at various places, you'll be kind of kept up to date with various events. There's, there's a book tour coming that has some surprises in it. So there'll be some interesting information about that coming out at some point here. That was my conversation with Daniel Krauss, which took place back at the end of January. As I mentioned, if you'd like to hear the full interview with Daniel and an exclusive excerpt from The Living Dead, the last work from the father of the modern zombie, George A. Romero, it'll be posted for Patreon supporters in the coming days. If you'd like to get your hands on the book, it's available at bookstores and in ebook as of August 4th. Now, how about we get to some stories of our own? Our first story for the evening comes from Chris Cole. Chris Cole is a writer and comic letterer with the greater Kansas City area. He is the assistant director of entertainment for the Kansas City Renaissance Festival and has co-produced their annual Phantom's Feast since 2018. Children of the Night, join me for Chris Cole's The Ablution Feast.
a Tales to Terrify original. Emily Cooper lingers by the brick oven for a moment, letting fires of the roast compensate for the harsh autumn weather. She had hoped the New World would be warmer than Sussex, but the Massachusetts Colony Falls were as unforgiving as the English winters. Resuming her task, she carries a tray of corn to the dining room, placing it by her child at the head of the table. It was the traditional place of honor in these feasts, and thankfully away from inconsiderate peers. Her stomach knots as she passes the cabinet holding her husband's rifles. She wonders which he'll use tomorrow. Philip? Emily asks the boy. How are you feeling? Philip barely hears through his head bindings. The boy sits alone, his only communication an occasional whimper and wince. Emily and her husband wrapped his entire body in whatever cloth they could find. Blankets and towels were tied around his head and mouth when his face began to contort. A subdued rumble of distractionary prattle fills the room as guests wait to be seated, the volume only spiking when another child becomes too unruly. Reverend Fletcher stands against the wall, noting every attendee, a constant scowl across his face. The minister was not a jovial man, but Emily couldn't remember if he had been this cold at every ablution. The room noise drowns out Philip's muffled moans, but Emily hears them as she places the dish. Philip? She asks again. The moist eyes of a frightened child glow yellow as Philip looks up at his mother. He turns away, letting out another strained moan. Emily places a gentle hand on his shoulder as he curls over. The growth's on his spine again. They'll stop hurting when the rest of the back scales over. The change happens slowly at first, with rough patches of mildly discolored skin. These are often mistaken as scabs or bruising, even with their greenish hue. When his hair began thinning, Emily feared the worst. The slits appeared on his neck shortly after, three down both sides. Then the changes became rapid. His teeth sharpened, his bones stretched. Within the month, Coopers would see every telltale sign of the curse. As far as anyone in the Bay Colony was aware, Philip was the youngest person to be afflicted. Emily! A voice shouts from the back. Can you open the door, please? Coming, Barnabas, she replies, recognizing the voice of her husband. She opens the door as Barnabas carries in a box of clanging bottles he picked up from the brewers that afternoon. I wasn't sure if we'd have enough for the guests tonight, he explains. The only alternative would be water, and there's certainly no chance I would give that to children. He shuffles the basket into the kitchen, removing the bottles as Emily closes the door. Another clang rings with each ale unpacked. You never said how much it cost. Emily mutters. The clanging stops. It was complimentary, after I explained it was for an ablution feast. An ablution feast for a child. Emily stands idly for a moment before turning to check on the roast. It seems to be cooking slower than usual. Yes, he's only a child. He's a child of God, Emily! Barnabas shouts before forcing his voice into an inside tone. He's being taken away from us by the devil himself! 
Same as the others. He'll turn and he'll head for the bay, like they all do. And good that it's close, because anything between him and those waters will meet an ungodly end. Anything that does not kill him first. You've seen the animals mangled. You know the friends we've lost. That is not a fate I wish upon our son. Emily has seen this look in her husband's eyes before. His eyelids blink quickly, his lips quiver as he swallows his own saliva. Just like the day Philip discovered the slits in his neck. It was the first time either Philip or Emily had ever seen a man weep. What happens after? She asks. After dinner, we retire for the evening. At dawn, I will take Philip Hillside so he may see one last sunrise before his... Before I do what is necessary. Reverend Fletcher will oversee the funeral arrangements and bless the house after the deed is done. A heavy knock pierces the idle chatter inside the home. Barnabas takes a moment to straighten his back, regaining his composure. A host without proper posture insults his guests. He excuses himself to the door. William Chapman had arrived from Newtown with his family. Barnabas offers to help hitch their cart. Emily picks up a basket of squash to place on the table. Upon setting the basket, she meets the stare of Reverend Fletcher. The Reverend hasn't moved. He's holding his spot in the corner, quietly examining each of the guests. His face stone. His Sunday sermons were furious and animated, making his silences all the more unnerving. With the curse over the colony, his passions have become focused. He didn't think much of the ablution feasts, but he understood their purpose. Bless the accursed and allow the family their goodbyes. A distraction with purpose, but still in his eyes, a distraction. Will, will you be staying long, Reverend? She asks, her voice weak. Long enough to bless the meal, he responds. I only wish to ensure the boy's soul. I have no desire to linger in the presence of evil. His words insulted Emily, but there was no point fighting it. Reverend Fletcher preached from a powerful pulpit. Publicly challenging him would only turn her and Barnabas into pariahs. She glances back at her son. Has anyone been cured? Emily asks the Reverend. This isn't a fever, good wife Cooper. Reverend snaps back. Wickedness has infected your child. It poisons his body, but it cannot take his soul. But can't we absolve him? Emily replies, forcing her voice into a whisper. Can't my son see adulthood? You are facing genuine evil, goodwife Cooper, and weakness will only encourage the adversary. There has to be some way. There is God's way and no other, as in all things. The minister's harsh dismissal leaves Emily stunned as she slinks back to the kitchen, stopping as the front door opens. Barnabas and William walk in, sharing idle conversation. She looks to Philip one more time as he stares blankly into the table, completely uninterested in the food that takes up most of its space. The roast should be done by now, but Emily figures it can wait. Philip, she mutters to her son, I think you should wash up for dinner now. Philip turns his wrapped head to his mother. She nods towards the front door, softly patting him on the back. He follows her direction. Did I ever tell you about England? Emily tells Philip as they walk out the door. We lived on a dairy in East Sussex. I used to ride into town with your grandfather on market days. Talkative man your grandfather was. Always with some piece of knowledge he wanted to impart upon the next generation. Not that it was all platitudes. 
There were plenty of practical lessons in these rides. I suppose it's no surprise the first was horse driving. The knot hitching Chapman's cart falls apart before Philip realizes his mother pulled it. He watches Emily as she pulls herself onto the seat, waving him on as she settles. With only a single glance behind him, he climbs beside her. Do you know the way to the harbor? She asks. Philip instinctually points a single webbed finger east. As Emily tugs the reins, realizing she'll be the topic of Reverend Fletcher's sermon this Sunday, a shame she won't be there to hear it. That was Chris Cole's The Ablution Feast, as read by Bryce Dolly. Bryce Dolly is new to voiceovers and voice acting, and is excited to jump into it. If you'd like him to record anything for you, he can be found at fiverr.com slash awkwardmammal. Thank you, Bryce. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Our second story this evening comes from Steve Toes. Steve Toes is from England, and now lives in Munich, Germany. He writes regularly for Fortean Times and Folklore Thursday. His story, Call Out, first published in Innsmouth magazine, was reprinted in The Best Horror of the Year 6, 
and two of his stories have been published in Best Horror of the Year 11. He also likes sold motorbikes and vintage cocktails. You can keep up to date with his work via his Patreon, website, and social media. Links are in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Steve Toze's Streubsweiser, first published in Shimmer number 46, November 2018. Kate's been out on the roof again. She's drawn her finger through salt to the color of wood ash, the sigils barely holding together on the terracotta slope of the tiles. The gutters are clogged with yellow fat, and dead hairs whose eyes are gilded in gold leaf. Across the valley, a field of barley whitens with mold and blight. I coax her back through the casement and hold her while she whispers curse words into the damp cotton of my shoulder. Her breath smells of bonfire smoke. She does not sleep. I know where the artist's bones are. Deep in the clay below the Gravenstein apple trees. Root wrapped and smeared with grease. The fruit tastes slightly of marrow and damp cloth. It is not an unpleasant flavor. Something has been killing the hoopo, leaving their plucked bodies in the orchard's long grass. Their scorched beaks have been torn free and sealed tight with honey. Kate does not come down here often, though she can see the trees from the house. I pick up the corpses, the loose feathers, and drop them into a burlap sack, the one I normally use for harvested fruit. Later, I bury their small bodies in shallow graves. I didn't mean to, Kate says, and I know she's telling the truth. He scrubbed out the salt. I don't know why he scrubbed out the salt. I look at the line going around the house. A single footprint has worn through the white powder, tread still visible. He lies on the corner of the porch, eyes wide and blinded, with mold erupting through his jaw and across his tongue. Even though the cartilage in his throat has turned to dust, he still tries to speak. You need to finish what you started. It's not right to leave him like this, to leave him for me to deal with, I say. But even as I finish speaking, I know she can't. She never can. We keep two large apple presses behind the house. I use the second one and later burn his uniform down at the far end of the orchard. The wind will carry the char of smoke down the valley, away from us and the town. Kate sits, her back against the pollard's bark while she knits. I watch bees flit from blossom to blossom. The day is calm and bright, her needles clattering against each other. I'm glad she's come down amongst the trees, the air is full of the scent of fresh grass, crushed by our footsteps. I force the scions into the cleft cut in the rootstock, take out the chisel, 
and seal the graft with wax from a single red candle. Afterwards, I'm not sure how she distracted me to get at the tree, but she managed to. The glyphs are small and precise, carved with the tip of her knitting needles. I know she has good intentions. She sees the gaps in the world and needs to close them. I'm grateful. How can I not be? But I wish she would tell me. Speak to me. I dig up the tree and the surrounding soil. There are still unburnt scraps of uniform on the warm embers. I push them deep into the flames as the dirt-covered roots start to smolder. We are low on food, so I take some of last year's crop to the village to sell. Had a bonfire? Carmen in the grocer's asks. I know what she wants to know. I stay silent. I've hidden most of the scrying ingredients in the house, but Kate is inventive. Instinctive. I can feel her watching even when she isn't. Burning old scrub, I say, putting the basket on the counter. There will be extra cash, too, but I will stash that away for the winter. We've seen the hut again, Rachel. Going between the trees, Bill says. He stands by the window and does not turn as he speaks to me. I have not seen the hunting lodge appear, but it does not surprise me. I notice the clattering first. Hundreds of barbed fish hooks fall from the sky onto the road outside. This is not Fortian, but a threat. I step outside, and the downfall pauses long enough for me to get to the car, before intensifying once again to trap Carmen and Bill inside the store. I see their faces pressed against the lettered glass. The sky glitters. Kate has done it for me. Setting the clouds on fire and letting them fall like forgotten fireworks. This won't last, you know, she says, slipping her arms around my waist. We just need to make the best of it. The streamers of light twitch as they hit mist, rising from the river. Already fading, I say, and she sighs, unhooking her fingers and walking away. I arrive back from the orchard and cannot get into the house. The porch is covered in wax bees, their wings fluttering against the rotting wood. The day is warm, and the wax soon melts. The insects inside fall to the ground, suffocated. I try not to step on them, but there are too many, and they rasp as I make my way inside. The hives will be empty now, and many of the trees will not fruit. The artist only ever gave Kate one piece of art, an old installation never taken by a gallery. She keeps it in the cellar, no other room big enough to display it. On the day he delivered it, he pulled up the lane in a battered white van. With our help, he dragged out the hospital gurney, ants and beetles already suffocating in the thick smear of honey across the metal. 
After he left, Kate would eat the sweetened insects, dedicating each death to a goddess whose name only she knew. In the morning, I scoured the riverbank, collecting torn shrapnel from a plane's fuselage. The registration number is scorched beyond reading. There is no one to tell. I take Kate by the hand and she leads me down to the orchard, though I am the one who asked if we could go. Paperweights of dew slide from the grass, glisten on the skin of her bare feet, and for a moment I am transfixed. We reach the orchard, and it is worse. Even Kate gasps. The elm trees are no longer seedlings, their granite branches resting on the crowns of the apple trees, crushing their belepsh and vieux rouge to pulp. There are two thousand, she says, reaches up and plucks a leaf, lets it fall. Silica in the rock glistens like dying stars. There need to be zero. They are killing the apple trees. I do not ask where the stone has come from, whether she grifted it from some family quarry in a nearby village, or it erupted and cooled from a volcano far through the earth. I think I can smell bone in the rock. I do not ask. Someone has been to the house. After Shave lingers around the porch, a light reek of citrus and alcohol. I let my hand rest on the door handle, peering through the frosted glass for any bundles in the hallway that do not look like they belong. Kate is sitting on the stairs. The visitors went away, she says. Her knuckles are red raw where she's torn skin to lace. I nod. It was lucky they did. I know what she was planning to do. I'm glad she didn't feel she had to. She has found the artist's cap and is wearing it, long hair bunched up inside. Sat in the dark. The room is heavy with the reek of sweat-stained wool and all his lies. When he was alive, he never took it off. The thing with lies is they have power. He knew that, and wore them like ribbons. Kate uses them to create other things. These falsehoods smell of mildew. I glance at her arm in the little light coming from the window. She is sprouting jackal fur in the crook of her elbow. I reach into my pocket for the tweezers, ready to pluck it out hair by hair. Root by bloodstained root. It's the only way or it will spread, and she will be his by morning. Later that night I take the hat down to the meadow and try to burn it to ash. The flames dance across the weave. I wedge it into the crook of a pear tree. I know it will be back in the attic by morning. They're not taking our apples in town anymore. They say that the crop is tainted. Kate wants to come to the town to support me. I can't let her. The way they'll react to her. The way she'll react to them. I wake up in the middle of the night and go to her room. She's sitting on the edge of her bed, 
window open. I can hear flies buzzing across the fruit as their offspring burrow through apple skin. The scent is sweet and warm and collapsing. I walk across to shut the window, and she says nothing. You need to stop, I say. What will happen will happen, she replies. Her face is turned toward the floor, shadowed and hidden. I cannot tell her reaction. There is a scent of burning willow and pine. Sap bubbles out of her fingertips and drips to the floor. I tell Kate that after enough blossoms have fallen in the meadow, the artist will find his own way back through the soil to knock on the door. She asks about all the wasps that drink themselves to death on apple rot cider, slipping between worm casings and mole burrows. I do not have an answer for her that is not a lie, so instead I tell her a truth. Wasps never stay under the earth for long, dead or not, before they steal skeletal leaves for wings and return. We drove into the town. It's the first time Kate has left home in five years. She sits in the back, the window closed even though the day is one of the hottest of the year. I can smell myself on the recycled air inside the car. I turn us down the main street. People are sitting under parasols, drinking ice-crowded drinks and eating chemical-flavored ice cream. They're staring, Kate says shrinking down in her seat. They're not, I lie. It's far too warm to pay attention to anyone else. But she does not believe me. My lies are brittle children, and they do not live long around her. The beetles are small and black and crawl out from inside the doors, up over the car's windows, scratching the glass with their feet. Soon they obscure the view outside, the temperature inside climbing as the sunlight bakes their carapaces. I put on the wipers to clear the windscreen, but there are too many, and they smear as they are crushed. I slow down. I can hear them crawling along the petrol pipes, drowning in the fuel and filling the tank. Their dying bodies clog the air vents, sealing us from the world. I could explain that this spectacle of death is draping us in attention, that people who had not noticed our progress through the town center are now leaving their houses to watch, to stare. I do not. Cars are not the only things that can be suffocated with dying insects. We abandon it beside the road and walk home through the orchard. We need to make the circle bigger, she says. I am too distracted by looking after the fruit to pay any attention, to give her any attention. The salt crosses the track up to the house, crystals fresh. Along the ditch are two rows of salt pans, evaporating in the sun, stone tacky with clots. There are two people on the back porch. She has slit their throats with sharpened oak leaves wrapped them in blankets that do not cover their injuries. Through the fabric I see bones like larch poles snapped and splintered. 
the last of their blood, the little she did not harvest for crystals, has seeped across the floor. Flies from the rotten apples sip their fill. What was I supposed to do? She says. I take her arm and lead her back in. Her hands are stained with yellow pollen. I do not know which flower it comes from, but I wash it down the sink. It was very quick, she says as I scrub her hands with the nail brush. She winces as the bristles catch her knuckle scabs. I say nothing. I did not want to leave her for the night, but accountants don't come where we live. Carmen and the others must have seen my car go, took their chance to try and stop Kate. They did not succeed. From a distance, it looks like the visitors got together to help manage the orchard, but Carmen and the others aren't pruning the tree. Accelerated branch growth has woven its way through their veins, splitting their muscles from their bones. Their teeth will be the fruit harvested in autumn. I find Kate amongst the windfall, arms around her knees. We need to make the circle bigger, all the way around the fields, she says. But I know that no salt circle will ever be big enough to keep the world out. Maybe we're two faces of the same monster, me and her. I hold her close and ignore the sound of shattering jaws from the canopy above. I lace my fingers through hers and lead her back to the house. Kate has covered all the furniture in calico, thick and muffled. Mice tug the fibers loose and hoard them behind wooden slats in the walls. I stand in the middle of the room and look around at the chairs, the sofa, the cupboards, the piano. She brushes past me and sits down on the stool. Her hair is curled with honey that drips down the back of her dress. I try not to gag at the sweetness. She rests her hands on the covered keys and underneath, hammer strike taut, muffled strings. When he made the original one, he meant it to be silent. I've barely finished speaking before. I know I've made a mistake. She stands and walks over, placing each foot with grace, running a finger through her hair. She coats my lips with honey. The sugar turns to skin, and I have no mouth. She returns to the piano stool and continues to play. Later that night, she wakes me and runs a fingernail across my face. The mouth is not mine. Her memory is not that precise, but I am glad to be able to speak. I'm sorry, she says, and I want to answer, but even with my speech returned, I cannot bring myself to reassure her. Wilted blossoms fall around us as we stand in the middle of the orchard. They're dying, I say, and she nods. The trees can only take so much grief, absorb so much death before their roots wither in the ground. I can make them come back, 
she says. And I appreciate her offer, because it is truly given, and comes from sadness, which is her most powerful ingredient. But I shake my head. Even if they do, there are no bees, I say. And before she offers to fix them too, I hug her, and we sag against each other like two trees planted too close. There are routes she does not know, routes I have masked from her with honeysuckle and knots of uncarded wool buried in old lemonade bottles, the necks sealed with glass marbles and apple pips. I buried them long ago, pressing them down into the dirt of the path, below stiles and between hawthorn trees. The fog of them gets lost in the fog of her thoughts. The basket is heavy and split willow rods rub away the skin of my forearms. Kate is having a good day. I can come and help, Rachel, she says. She never uses my name. There are only two of us. It sounds crystallized on her tongue. I'm fine, I say. I'll be back for dinner. I have my lunch in here. She smiles, and I do not notice at the time how brittle it is. I should not have drawn her attention to the basket. There is food in there, but not for lunch. Enough to get me beyond the hills. The route is blocked with brass rods running from thorned branch to thorned branch. She is sitting on the fence, wrapped in calico. The trees reach out and entangle me before I can move. Blood beads along my arms and hardens to ladybirds that scratch far more than the thorns. I couldn't carry on, I say. She nods and strokes my arm between the wounds to give me ease. I know, and I'm sorry. I wake up in the fruit cellar, lying on a metal gurney. It is dented beneath my spine, and I cannot get comfortable. Across the room she has arranged the artist's bones, a pile of wet soil on the concrete where she has sifted for his fingertips. Without moving, she drags the gurney toward her. The hair is nestled in her lap, blank-eyed, gold leaf crumpled against its lashes. I won't be him, you know, I say. I know, she says, smiling. I will have the best of both of you. This is a lie she speaks, with the full knowledge of its nature. His skeleton doesn't quite fit in my skin. Splinters of bone embroider my muscles, which are too short to stretch across the new femurs. My own are a fine powder coating my diaphragm and lungs. Already infections are spreading from the clay she did not clean from the time-pitted surface of his spine. Vertebrae are in the wrong place. I do not know if this is intentional or carelessness. There is pain, but I cannot scream. 
She has stitched my mouth shut to stop my face slipping from his skull. She has kept my hands free to make the new artworks he never finished. The finger bones are too long for me to hold the tools she has prepared. Soon, she will strip me back to her artist's bones, and I will be little more than fat clogging the drains. That was Steve Toze's Streubsweiser, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family when they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband, and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts? Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we disturb the grave with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.